1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how legacy media outlets, the biggest of big media, have been systematically greenwashing sponsored content from the fossil fuel industry during the climate crisis. You heard that right. Places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Reuters, Politico, they're being paid big money by the fossil fuel industry to create so-called branded advertorial content touting themselves as part of the climate solution rather than the climate problem. Today, I'll be speaking with the great climate journalist Amy Westervelt, who exposed this huge deception in a shocking new report. We also spoke about the UN's COP28 climate conference and how it's been slowly co-opted by, yep, you guessed it, the fossil fuel industry. For our paid subscribers, we're also always dropping bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Coming up next week is my interview with Princeton professor D. Graham Burnett, who recently co-authored an op-ed for The New York Times about our ever-diminishing attention span. This is due to what Graham calls attention fracking from social media giants whose primary business is to keep your eyes glued to your screen so they can profit from your attention. It was a really interesting discussion and we're excited to share it with you on the premium podcast feed. If you want access to our premium content, head over to LeverNews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, exclusive live events, even more in-depth reporting, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. All right, we're going to jump right to our interview today with Amy Westervelt. Look, if you've been following our work here at The Lever, You know we regularly report on the ways the fossil fuel industry greenwashes their true intentions. If you've never heard of it, greenwashing refers to when an organization spends more time and money on marketing itself as environmentally friendly than on actually minimizing its environmental impact. Whether it's the language of a press release, a private equity investment, or even a policy proposal, there are many, many ways a company or an industry can greenwash its messaging. Well, it turns out that some of the country's largest news outlets are also helping fossil fuel industry interests greenwash their message through the use of sponsored content, through things like advertorials, which are a combination of advertising and editorial content. Oil and gas companies are shelling out millions of dollars every year to some of the world's largest news outlets to produce and promote these advertorials and all sorts of other pro-oil and gas propaganda. Places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Reuters, Politico, they are all regularly producing sponsored content for the fossil fuel industry during the climate crisis, which is a huge problem for readers who often can't tell the difference between climate reporting and these branded advertorials. For today's interview, I spoke with climate journalist Amy Westervelt, who co-authored this blockbuster report on the link between the fossil fuel industry and these big media outlets. We talked about this history of branded partnerships between fossil fuel interests and the media industry. We talked about how the actual climate journalists at some of these outlets feel about this type of sponsored content. And we talked about how messaging about carbon capture and hydrogen technology are providing a smokescreen for an ever-growing expansion of fossil fuel production. We also talked about the recent UN Climate Conference, known as COP28, which has become yet another example of how the oil and gas industries manage to infiltrate and try to thwart any meaningful action against climate change. Hey Amy, how you doing?
0: I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm good. Uh, your your latest report was uh, mind-blowing, although in, in some ways not surprising for those who fu- those of us who follow this uh, as closely as we do, greenwashing. I think people have heard that term, greenwashing, basically corporations pretending to be uh, environmentally friendly uh, while actually just washing themselves in that brand and not being environmentally friendly. But what your report did uh, last week was expose the machinery of greenwashing and how it connects to the biggest uh, journalism brands in the world. Uh, It's supposed to be that journalism is supposed to expose corporate greenwashing. But what you've discovered in your reporting is that big parts of the corporate media world, of corporate journalism, are helping companies greenwash themselves. So tell us what you found.
0: I've covered this stuff before. You know it's been going on for a long time. But I still found stuff that I was really surprised to see here. Um, Most of the major media outlets that, you know, we all know of the New York Times, Washington Post, all of the, the, the Wall Street Journal, all of these outlets, they all have what they call internal brand studios, which are basically, you know, advertising agencies within the company. And they always make a point. Whenever I've written about this, they make a big point to say, look, the the ad studio is totally separate from editorial. There's no crossover. The journalists aren't involved in anything that we're doing on the ad side, all of that stuff. Which is good. I believe them. I believe that's true, you know? The problem, and this is something that that, you know, we found looking into all of the things that that they're doing, and also looking at the research on how readers actually take in this information, is that there's very little differentiation between editorial and advertorial in the ways that readers are consuming it. So for example, if you're on, you know, the New York Times homepage, and you see uh, a story that's all about, you know, Exxon's algae investments, for example, it looks very much like a New York Times story, and they they label it. They have a teeny tiny label at the top. You know, they're not. I'm again, like I'm not accusing them of <laughs> I'm not labeling it or any of those things. The, but the question for me is not, are your journalists independent? The question is, are your readers aware that this is completely paid for by Exxon? And especially when the ad studio is creating content that directly contradicts the reporting, which is what we saw over and over again in the New York Times. Reuters, that really shocked me. Reuters has a whole events business that's doing drilling events. I mean, they're doing events that are geared specifically and explicitly towards increasing fossil fuel production.
1: That came on my radar when I saw that come over the transom actually a couple of months ago. And we were gonna we were yeah. thinking of trying to send a reporter there. It was expensive, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's very expensive to try to cover the event. Yeah,
0: they do. They have a whole Reuters Events has an entire oil and gas segment, and they do five or six major oil and gas events every year. They it's they have like the data-driven oil and gas event, the downstream USA event. Right now, as COP28 is going on, they're doing their Middle East energy event. And the entire thing is being framed as COP is a huge business opportunity. Let us help you figure out how the energy industry is going to, you know, capitalize on COP and all of these things, you know. And in many of these cases, you've got at least one or two Reuters journalists who are there moderating panels, giving talks, All of that stuff, you know, so it's very, I don't know, to me, it just it seems like a wholesale um, selling off of their readership. It's that's what it is. It's like, look, you know, no one is going to with respect to the creatives who work at the T brand studio. That's not why Exxon is going to them. They're not going to them because of their their creative genius. They're going to them because they want their message wrapped in New York Times branding.
1: That that and that's such an important point.
0: Yeah, like same with the Washington Post. The Washington Post has kind of like flown under the radar on this for a while. They sent out more than a hundred newsletters for Exxon just last year alone. That's more than one a week. <laughs> you know, it's like look, there is no reason for the American Petroleum Institute to go to the Washington Post Creative Group to help with for help writing an op-ed. Except that they want that op-ed to be surrounded by the credibility of the Washington Post.
1: Right. And, and that, that's to your point at the beginning when you said there's these little labels. The point is, is that the advertiser is buying the brand of the New York Times or that's Politico right. or Reuters. They want that credibility. Uh, but then the question comes up which you address in your report which is well okay they want the credibility of the washington post brand they want their uh, their advertorial i mean what a what a monstrous word that is an advertorial <laughs> right they they want yeah. their <laughs> advertorials uh, next to and uh, shrouded in the brand of uh, these uh, allegedly credible media outlets but the devil's advocate argument would be well but the reader Knows what's going on. The reader, even if the label is small, the reader can tell. But as you report in your in your article, that may not actually be true. You looked at some academic yeah. studies about whether readers are really detecting the real source of uh, this advertorial content from the fossil fuel industry. What would you find?
0: At best, one third of readers actually differentiate between advertorial and editorial, and the more common stat is one in 10. Not a single bit of peer-reviewed research on this subject, which there's quite a bit of now. It's been kind of a thing for the last 10 years, you know, and the media has by and large kind of said this is an acceptable thing. It's not just, you know, the oil industry that they do this for. It's lots of other industries as well. There's been sort of this acceptance that sponsored content or advertorial or native content, it's all the same thing, is okay to do as long as you label it, no problem. But the, the research doesn't back that up, you know, if at most one in three people can can tell the difference. And the research also shows that the people who can tell the difference and who do notice that, oh, this is this is an ad, not editorial. And it contradicts what the paper's reporters say immediately lose all respect for that paper. The credibility goes down immediately. So it's like, you know, it's not ultimately serving the journalists that you're so quick to protect and say they're independent but you're you're totally selling them out.
1: Let's talk a little bit about what they tend to be selling in let's use let's a- advertorials. I mean, you mentioned the yeah. Reuters uh events which are explicitly pro oil and gas. I mean, they are oil and gas conventions, events. conferences and the like. Yes. The advertorial yes. stuff to my mind is even more insidious because a lot of the advertorials are not Necessarily, always saying, "Hey, oil and gas is great." You know, oil and gas yeah. gives us civilization and the like. A lot of times, the advertorials are about Exxon or or uh, major other major oil giants promoting uh, cl- cleaner technologies or technologies they mm-hmm. purport to be cleaner, uh, greener technologies. Uh, and and the question then becomes, well. Why is that bad? Why why is it bad if, if, okay, Exxon's buying an advertorial uh, touting its alleged investment in uh, algae energy? Hey, if they're making a a pivot, if Exxon's making a pivot uh, to at least acknowledge that uh, cleaner energy is good and that we should take climate change seriously and they're promoting that through advertorials, what's the problem with that?
0: The problem then becomes the whole greenwashing thing that you referred to before, where, you know, it's making it look like, well, there's there's two issues. One is like in the case of uh, there was an advertorial that Bloomberg, for example, produced for Exxon that was touting their carbon capture technology. Well, Exxon's carbon capture technology is primarily used for what's called enhanced oil recovery, which is basically right. injecting the compressed carbon underground to get more oil out. So if your climate solution results in more oil it's not a climate solution (laughs) right and and bloomberg's reporters have written about that over and over again they've done a really good job of exposing the lie there um but here their ad team is creating content that is you know allowing darren woods to say we have the potential it's very carefully worded. We have the potential to, you know, capture all of the emissions from power generation. That's very misleading. And again, would technically pass a fact check is legally okay, but is very misleading to readers. On the Reuters side, Reuters produced an entire podcast for Saudi Aramco called Powered by How," where a a former BBC World News presenter, walks people through how saudi aramco and the fossil fuel industry in general is leading the energy transition again like this is very misleading and the whole thing it's it's like at the very beginning they sort of say this is produced by reuters plus in in you know partnership with saudi aramco but then for you know 45 minutes you're hearing industry talking points you're never reminded that hey by the way these guys paid for this you know? And it's it's generally in that podcast. It's really interesting because they put the Saudi Aramco person in conversation with like a seemingly independent expert. So it really helps. Make whatever they're saying seem like, oh yeah, this is just we're just having a business <laughs> conversation, or we're having a totally you know unbiased conversation about this issue. Let's. I'm so sorry. That, that's
1: okay. I, I have a dog here at, at my house too, so dogs are welcome here on Lever Time. It's totally It's totally fine. I'm. I'm. He's. He, I'm. I'm glad your dog is is part of the audience. Um, there, let's talk about the history of this because while this is new, it has roots going back. Decades, the, the, the whole notion of an advertorial, uh, I, I believe the relationship between mobile oil and a couple of these uh, major media entities was kind of the beginning of this uh, in, 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 well, I guess in the, in the 70s. Like, tell us about how, how that all started back then.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's mobile oil and particularly this guy that I'm obsessed with, Herb Schmertz, who is the VP of public affairs for mobile oil. Um, In 1970, he worked with the New York Times to create the advertorial. That's that's the origin of the advertorial.
1: Proud legacy for Herbert Schmertz, the advertorial.
0: Proud legacy. (laughs) Yes. And before that, the, the New York Times did not even allow advertising on the editorial pages. They didn't just not allow, you know, companies to write press releases in, in those pages. They kept them separate because they were supposed to be editorial viewpoints from, you know, either staffers or regular columnists at the paper. So this was like a huge shift. And the New York Times was the first to do it. Um, and starting in 1970, Mobile Oil and then Exxon, once they acquired Mobile, they ran those weekly in the New York Times for decades. Jeffrey Supran and Naomi Oreskes did a study of all of those advertorials and found that of the ones that mentioned climate, 80% uh, tried to emphasize sort of doubt about climate science. Um, so that was a major way that a lot of, of early, you know, climate science denial was spread. It wasn't just that, you know, Herbert Herbert Schmerz was like a real pioneer of this of this whole realm of, of what they call issue advertising. That moment in 1970 represented a huge pivot for the whole industry where they stopped advertising gas and they started advertising ideas. And that is like a very, very different kind of thing. Um, you know, they start advertising policy positions and they start, you know, doing a lot more kind of reputational advertising and those kinds of things that really wasn't happening before then. And when the guardian decided to stop taking fossil fuel ads a few years ago, you know, the question is always, well, what about cars and what about airplanes and what about, you know, Amazon and all these other things that also have very high greenhouse gas emissions. Their response was, look, all of those other industries advertise a product or a service, the fossil fuel industry advertises policy positions and, you know, their stance on different issues. That's what makes it fundamentally different, which I think is a useful way to think about it, because it's true. That's what I can't remember last time I saw an ad for a Chevron gas station. I mean, they're here, here and there, you know.
1: But they're less about selling their main product in their advertising and more about selling effectively a justification for their existence, selling their ideas that will Portray them as part of the solution to climate change, or at least a part of a future economy uh, in a climate changed world, which scientifically speaking doesn't really hold up. So they're that's what their agenda uh, is. I I guess they 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 can afford to sell their uh, their product less because their product is effectively a commodity I mean there's for the for the average consumer there's right. no difference really uh, between the gas from Exxon or the gas from Chevron it's just gas so better to spend your advertising budget on these other things that build up your brand and position your company and your industry uh, as part of the long-term uh, solution in a climate changed world now let's go back to the to the journalism organizations here. We're talking about the biggest journalism yeah. organizations uh, in, in the world. We're talking about uh, The New York Times. We're talking about Bloomberg, The Economist, The Financial Times, Politico, Reuters, uh, The Washington Post. We're talking about kind of the elite consensus-making uh, journalism apparatus. And then the question then is, okay, those I've just named very big companies, right? Really big, well-capitalized companies. How much money does this involve for them, right? Like what's the scale here yeah. that if we if if they said or 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 their readers said, hey, this is not acceptable, I mean, how much money are they really raking in from this?
0: The largest by far is the New York Times. We found um, through this this ad data service called media radar that the New York Times, it has brought in over the last three years, which is the time period that we looked at $20 million uh, from fossil fuel advertisers, which is a lot of money. However, I would say that's like, that's a lot of money for your or my media Mm -hmm. organization, but for the, for oil companies or even climate philanthropies, that's not that much money. I feel like actually that is something that, um, you know, folks in the climate space who want to shift this stuff should be looking at, like, how do we dislodge that? If the concern, and oftentimes the justification for this is, well, where else are we going to get that money? How are we going to replace that revenue? Then that, to me, seems like a place where climate philanthropists should maybe look, okay, because I've asked them, actually, like, why don't you fund more investigative reporting at the New York Times, for example? And they say, well, the New York Times won't take grants from us for investigative reporting because they're worried about bias. And I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting because they took $20 million from the fossil fuel industry, so but I guess because it goes to the ad team, supposedly they're just impervious to any kind of bias, which I find very interesting." Um, but I'm like, "Okay, then fine, maybe it's look Will replace that revenue for sure. The they could
1: day. buy advert- advertorials, right? I mean, climate groups could buy a- exactly. advertorials. Exactly. I, I want to s- segue in, in, into the, that question of bias. Climate reporters who work at these outlets, I mean, these outlets will use the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times does produce, in some cases, some very good climate journalism, it also produces some very fossil fuel friendly. Uh, Propaganda uh, beyond the beyond the advertorials, like on its news pages. My question, I guess, is what sense do you have that climate reporters at these outlets feel uncomfortable with what's going on? And beyond that, how much can we assume that the reporting staff, the editorial side of the equation, knows how much money is coming into the institution and therefore Whether consciously or not, subconsciously, it it influences how uh, uh, antagonistic the editorial side wants to be with that industry that they know is funding a a large part of their institution.
0: Yeah. So I think that the um, on the question of how comfortable or not there we I spoke to climate reporters at most of these organizations and they hate it. You know, I, I think like we can all. Well, most of us can appreciate how uncomfortable that would be, you know. <laughs> and and certainly, like none of these people are getting paid more because right. of the Saudi Aramco buy, you know. Um, it's not like the climate journalists are are seeing a bump in their pay related to that. It's not even helping most of these outlets to keep reporters employed. Period. You know, we're continuing to see major layoffs across the board in the the climate realm as well. So um, there's no real benefit to the climate journalists from this practice. And in terms of how it creeps into their reporting, I think there's, I think actually, the way it works is less that, you know, the reporters know that there's money coming in, and that makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's more about another tactic, also pioneered by our friend Herb Schmertz, which is that these companies, because they have this financial relationship with the outlet, feel empowered to bully and be very aggressive about things they don't like. So for example, when the House investigation into the the oil companies was happening, and they were publishing various documents from that and whatnot, you saw some really interesting documents from Shell, related to the New York Times, where there was a particular reporter who was doing really great accountability reporting, Hiroko Tabuchi, and they did not like some of the stuff that she was doing. And they were being very vocal about it, not just publicly and to, you know, higher ups at the New York Times, but also to some of her colleagues reaching out and complaining about this, right? That creates a culture of, you know, oh, maybe maybe this has gone too far or maybe we should be careful about this or that because what they always lean on in those conversations is to accuse the reporter of being biased against the industry That's always the accusation and that is something that um, comes right out of I mean Herb's, herb Schmertz actually wrote a whole book about like how to do this and this is like one of his number one rules is like if they if a reporter writes something that you don't like, you have to jump on it right away. You have to publicly criticize them. you got to accuse them of being biased because journalists hate being accused of bias and they will overcorrect in your favor. And it has absolutely worked. And the fact that they're spending a lot of money with these outlets makes them that much more comfortable to do that. Like, Shell is not worried that the New York Times is going to stop covering them if they're, like, being too belligerent.
1: Right, but I, I also think that, like... That that Shell knows, presumes that when it yells at a a reporter at one of these institutions, it may not have to say, and, you know, I'm spending this much money over on the uh, on the brand studio. It's that that's you don't have to say that it's it's a known thing. It's It's understood. understood. And a lot of these things operate in a kind of unstated uh, way. And especially, by the way, in a journalism industry. That is already under assault by mass layoffs. Fewer and fewer people want to stick up their uh, up their head and 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 get get it lopped off by management, right? Oh, you're becoming a problem for okay, you know, uh, and, and they're never gonna they're not usually gonna fire you for oh you went after one of our advertisers. It's, just, it's not that crass, but it's like you've become a problem. We're hearing complaints, and it goes unstated, but the complaints are coming from the people who write big checks. Exactly. Like that's you don't even have to say it. It's it's implied. Right. I mean, it's 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 understood, as you put it. So this is all happening. uh, And your report comes out amid this international climate conference, which seems like a very public uh, attempt to greenwash the entire industry. Actually, it seems less subtle. Uh, than the advertorials we're talking about. I mean, they don't even seem to be really trying. I mean, the head of the COP conference, of this year's COP conference, runs a state-owned fossil fuel company. I mean, that's that's what he does. And so I I guess I would ask you here, give us a basic update, if you can, on what happened at the conference. And then my question for you, after you tell us a little bit about what happened at the conference... What's the takeaway from a conference that is supposed to be the global response to climate change becoming an oil conference? Like, what do we take away from that? What's gone wrong? Like, what what are the lessons of that?
0: What's happened at this COP is sort of what everyone was predicting would happen, which is a huge emphasis on, you know, the industry's favorite solutions, which are mostly carbon capture and hydrogen and the um, at like real leaning on this very wonky word unabated um, or abated, which like refers to, you know, whether or not you're quote unquote abating the emissions that are connected to these fossil fuel projects. The main technologies for abatement right now are really carbon capture and like we just talked about carbon capture, I mean, worldwide, it's around 80% is used for enhanced oil recovery. So like, I, I don't understand how that possibly equates to abating emissions, but that is a big part of the language that we're seeing. As of, you know, right now, we're talking on on Tuesday, they're still like, they're in overtime now trying to finalize text. The last draft text we saw, any kind of words around a fossil fuel phase out were gone, there are negotiators that are trying to get that back in. The one kind of success out of this COP, I would say, is is probably around loss and damage and the the commitment of money from some countries and the creation of a financial mechanism to actually get that money to less developed countries. But it's like a million miles off from where it needs to be. Um, so even that is sort of eh. And in terms of, you know, where does this leave us? I mean, I think it's important for people to understand that COP has been invaded by oil interest since the very beginning. The guy who ran the 1992 Rio Earth Summit was a Canadian tar sands guy. Like the the industry was there doing, you know, side meetings and and really was was fundamentally part of creating the UN framework on on climate change. You know, from the very, very beginning, they are the ones that baked in the idea that, you, know, voluntary action was going to be enough to solve this problem. Um, and that again comes from a, a long history of, you know, the PR industry really pushing that idea and the idea that, you know, the industry can just take its own steps and that will be enough and, and all of those kinds of things. So they've been there from the beginning. This is true of the IPCC process too. You know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, several lead authors on those reports every single cycle are from fossil fuel companies um so i think for me it seems like okay can we finally have a conversation about like coming up with an international process that does not include these guys because what what everyone says all the time is like but you have to include them they if they're not involved then and they're not bought into the solution then it won't work well we've been trying that for 30 plus years now, and it hasn't worked, (laughs) you know? I don't understand why, you know, it's sort of like, you'll hear, oh, but they have all the engineering prowess and they have all the technical. Okay, can we not insist that they put that to work on a real energy transition? Why do they have to be the ones that are dictating terms? But you're dealing with an industry that is more powerful than any one government, and that's the big problem. Things like COP are supposed to exist to deal with that problem, to get enough of a coalition of governments together that they have equal power to the industry.
1: I, I want to I ask a follow-up question to, to why it hasn't worked, which, which it seems that this industry has refused to try to adapt in, in becoming energy companies as opposed to fossil fuel companies. We have seen in the past other industries adapt. As an example, we're watching one right now. The automobile industry was an industry that was a combustion engine industry. It is now starting to adapt to become uh, a a hybrid. Uh, 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 It's still making combustion engines, but it's starting to uh, add electric uh, power generation for cars. It is adapting. Uh, That's not a silver bullet solution, but it's an industry that's adapting. The fossil fuel industry, it seems to me, has not made any real serious at scale effort to adapt, uh, uh, broaden the portfolio from being just fossil fuel companies. I mean, some companies, I guess, are a little better than, than others, but at large, the industry remains not an energy industry, but a fossil fuel industry. I just wonder from your perspective as somebody who's reported on this and studied this, why has this industry been so resistant to diversify its own set of businesses? What is it? I mean, it's not like they lack resources for future investment. So what is going on here?
0: Yeah, actually, that was the thing that finally made uh, Cristiana Figueres be like, OK, these guys are not going to ever operate in good faith. She she talked about this recently where she said, look, they have always told me that it was a capital problem, that actually they just didn't have the capital to sort of fund this pivot in a big, large scale way. And so um, she has said that she you know, kind of believed that when they had these windfall profits from the Russia-Ukraine situation, that they would invent, okay, here we go. They've got the money. Now they're going to do it. And of course, all they did was, you know, pay back, hired uh, dividends and stockpile money and, you know, whatever else. Um, so at that point, she kind of finally was like, okay, these guys are just full of it. They're never going to do it. The reality is, they have not found anything that makes as much money as oil and gas. That's it. It's like it's there's nothing more to it than that. It's greed, you know. It's just that.
1: But but to be precise, it's not that they haven't found things that can make money.
0: Just it's not that they as haven't much. found yet.
1: The margins yeah. are That's not right. as much as oil and gas. So it seems to me that they refuse to accept lower margins. It's not that they refuse to accept. It's one thing to say I, I I I reject the idea that there's just – in a world where there's no business to be made on energy, we, we have to stick with this one thing. They're not, there's no proof that you can't make money uh, on cleaner sources of energy. This industry is saying we refuse to accept the amount of profit that we're making. We could make less profit, a.k.a. be sustainable, still make money for our shareholders, but we're not willing to accept – less than the amount of profit we're making for our share- shareholders than we do now. I mean, that really is kind of sociopathic.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And it's important to to note that, like, that's because of the system that they're operating in. I mean, they would have a I mean, probably a lawsuit on their hands from shareholders, if Darren Woods tomorrow was to say, I'm going to turn my back on X amount of profit and instead invested in this thing that I know is a lower return investment, he would be removed from his job legally and and absolutely because that is how corporations are supposed to operate, especially when they're publicly traded corporations. So it's like, I you know, I don't know. I feel like I constantly have people being like, Oh, keep all the issues separate. They're not separate. They're not, sep- right. you know, like you can't separate climate from capitalism. It just doesn't work. You know, like it. we don't end up with this problem absent capitalism, because what we have in the, the current way that capitalism exists, particularly in the U.S., is that it would actually be a legal problem for a CEO like Darren Woods To act according to his conscience rather than according to what would deliver the most amount of profit.
1: Although, although there is an economic argument. I mean, it's totally the the economic argument is to be more precise about it. It's capitalism plus short-termism. I can only think about. Revenues and profits in the, the next, next quarter. quarter. Yes, I can't think about revenue and profit in the next twenty-five years, the next quarter century.
0: Which actually, though, they are thinking about it. The whole way that they are structuring these deals in places like Guyana and Mozambique and all these what they call frontier countries, where they're exploring for oil and gas, right? Is and I mean, Darren Woods said it in their most recent one of their recent analyst calls. He said, "We're taking Guyana, which would have." in the past been a long-term play and turning it into a short-term play. Why are they doing that? Because they know that they're not gonna be able to make as much money off of oil and gas in 10 years. And so instead of doing structuring it the way they usually would, they're making sure that they can get paid out in the next decade and they can leave all the risks and liabilities with the with the government of Guyana. In 10, 15 years,
1: right? I mean, I mean, this is this is the crazy dynamic. They they see the writing on the wall. Totally, cleaner sources of energy are becoming more cost competitive, which means they got to try to, from their perspective, they believe they have to try to rake in as much money uh, in in profit right now because those profits may not be there down the road, may not be there for reasons that are for sort of human survival, survival of the planet. And so it it actually accelerates uh, their frantic effort to to pump more oil and 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 if that dooms the climate, that's the rest of our problem. It's not their problem, even though of course, I mean, it, it's everyone's problem. If you live on Earth, it's it kind of is your problem.
0: Totally, totally, I do. I mean, I fully expect to see, because all of these companies have been researching and developing alternative energies for a long time they just don't want to actually pivot to them until you know the exact right moment where they think the math is going to pencil out the best for them you know um and it, they're not that's the, like the thing again god i am I'm, I'm so obsessed with herb Schmertz. the other thing he came up with is the whole idea of corporate personhood he like he and mobile in the 70s started backing all of the, like, the legal precedents to what would eventually become Citizens United. And a big part of that was this whole idea of issue advertising, ideas advertising. Herb Schmertz was like, we need to create we need people to see mobile as a person. And I, I think that's where, like, the thinking gets really skewed in all these climate negotiations, too, because it's like we're thinking we're, we're drinking the Kool-Aid, expecting Exxon to behave in a moral way. It's not a person. It's not has no morality. It exists to make profit for shareholders. And that is it. So those that's what it's going to make decisions based on. It doesn't it's not rational. It's not moral.
1: No, it's it's I mean, it's 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 like the Terminator, the Terminator, to, yes. You know the, the old Terminator one, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger robot. It doesn't care about anything. It has one directive, which is, I mean, when we talk about corporate personhood, that that is not how uh, most people behave. That's not unless you're an actual sociopath. I mean, you can understand a corporation. If a corporation is a person, a corporation is typically, a major corporation is typically a sociopath. And that's the best way to understand it as a person. It's not the kind of person you probably want to hang out with. And then, of course, they turn around and they... Do what they do in the report that you uh, did last week. Uh, they join up with the biggest news organizations in the world to greenwash themselves and sell themselves as um, as focused on climate change, as focused on solutions, even though you can see in their financial filings and in their in their actions in the in the public policy sphere, they are anything but caring about uh, the climate uh, the climate crisis. Amy Westervelt is an award-winning investigative journalist, the founder and executive editor of Drilled Media, which is an investigative reporting project digging into the various forces obstructing action on climate change. We're going to link to the wonderful piece that uh, she uh, and her colleagues reported about This link between the fossil fuel industry and the major media outlets uh, that many consider to be the most trusted in the world, it is must-read kind of uh, reporting. You have to check it out. We'll link to it. Amy, thank you so much for taking time with us today, and thank you, as always, for your wonderful reporting.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for everything you guys are doing, too. I'm always like, ooh, good lover story. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks a lot.
1: That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Lever Time Premium, you get access to our regular bonus episodes. This week's bonus episode is about corporations attempting to frack your attention. It's a good one. To listen to Lever Time Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at LeverNews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from Lever producer Jared Jacang Mayer.